0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and
1: Adam Pawatik.
2: Hey, this is Adam from the CRE Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded a while ago. So it's a little bit dated. It's one of the conferences in 2023. It was released in video format at the time for anybody that wanted to watch Aaron and I speak in person. But this, of course, will be the, the podcast platform. So we are going to release all the content now. It is good stuff. Some of the references might not jibe contextually with the current market. Keep that in mind when you're listening to it. And I guess the other big takeaway message is for 2024, we've invested into a podcast producer. And you're going to see episodes that are released very shortly after recording. And you'll probably see a little more social media going on. So look forward to it.
1: Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, Adam Powadic, recording here live at Real Capital. Our guest today is a gentleman named Scott McPherson, who is the executive managing director, head of capital at Cushman Wakefield. Welcome.
0: Good afternoon.
1: So as the longtime listeners know, we don't do a ton of prep on this. So Scott sits down and we go, right, what do you want to talk about? And we started talking about, oh, do you want to go through four asset classes? Do you want to have geography? And we discovered that Scott's got a background on capital equity, capital structures, things like that. So we're actually going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into capital structures, the way that capital comes together, different approaches to it, how it all works. Before we go there, we always like to just kind of go back first and see, you know, how did you end up with the expertise that you have, Scott? And how did you end up at Cushman Wakefield? At Cushman Wakefield, I had uh, previously worked in New York with a private equity firm
0: that had a number of different funds, both debt funds and equity funds. And I worked there for years as an originator. And prior to that, I was working in the UK with a European investment bank. Um, when I ended up at Cushman, it was right after the bloodbath of 08 in New York, quite frankly. So, you know, we were seeing a lot of various other groups kind of fall down the fund. Kind of segment was receding. And, you know, eventually it was my turn. So I came back to Canada, which has always been a uh, home for me. And when I came back, really it was a case of looking at deal activity, getting onto, I think, the more transactional side of the fence and looking where I could potentially add value. And I think, you know, at Cushman Wakefield, where I found my home and have been there now for close to 13, 14 years now. Found a home in the Capital Markets Group and working very tightly with still the group out in New York and been there for a long time now. And, and more recently, about four years ago, started Cushman Wakefield Capital. And then we did a big merger at Cushman with our service line in the Capital Markets Group by bringing our capital platform, which was equity and debt, coupled now with investment sales to kind of have all of the transactional volume be tied to our
2: capital services. There's going to be a quick little sidebar here. Did speak about this earlier today? Does the market turbulence now feel at all like it did for you down in New York? So obviously, had a much more pronounced negative reaction than uh, Canada. There's been some debate over that in the last couple of weeks. Just kind of your quick two-minute take on that, and then we'll get this podcast back on track.
0: It is different. I'd say 2008 was such an unknown. You know, you go from... Massive originations, huge CMBS pools forming, like just a ton of flow of capital to it overnight being gone, essentially. And, you know, I think that's what's different about it this time. It's almost like a receding, longer play out of, of challenges. But, well, the other thing is real estate and real estate debt in particular had nothing to do with the circumstances. No, I mean, I, I would argue CMBS loans were kind of fine there, right? It was all the other crap in CDOs that really dragged it down, but it's very different. So I, I'm not as negative as what it was in '08. but I think for many, especially those Gen Z listeners out there, this is probably the first time they're seeing some headwinds in the marketplace after a decade of a strong run. So
1: it's different. Let's just set the scene here. So it's 2023. We're coming out of COVID, post-COVID world. Transactions are occurring, people are getting back into things. Life's not normal, but surely it feels a lot better than it ever has, at least in the last three years. There's disruptions in all sorts of asset classes, but people are trying to get back into things. The way we've been classifying it and the way you kind of hear the tone of the morning sessions between Benjamin Tall and, and the like there's way less uncertainty in the marketplace now than there was a year ago or two years ago, right? Like you kind of know where you hope anyway, that you know that rates are going to be in this little band and that you can kind of get a sense of normalcy. So you can kind of start making some assumptions for where we're going forwards. And so we are starting to hear the transactions are coming back. People are coming back to the table. Pens are not fully down. They may not be up, but they're people are thinking about picking up their pen again is the easy way to put it from the equity side, from the capital side when they're approaching you saying, I'm thinking about putting up the pen, I don't know how to do this though. Like, I don't know where to go. What is the advice that you're giving them today? Whatever
0: expectation you had on timeframes, extend it by twice as much. And I think, you know, when we look at our capital raising business, whether it's for open end funds or closed end funds, specific strategies, or setting up a separately managed account for one of our bigger investor service clients, The advice we're giving them is it's not 2021 where there was an an abundance of dry powder for this strategy. It has receded. And the timeframes of raising previously have absolutely doubled. And all the data that we collect also points to that. But, yeah, timeframes. And I think also just net returns, right? Like the investment market, whether it's institutionalized or it's family office capital or accredited investors – Their net return basis due to inflation just everything costs a bit more (laughs) they're expecting a bit more out of performance when it's really tough to do in the environment that we're in in the real estate market so that all kind of leads back to obviously the timing question where you really have to walk the investor through the strategy that our clients have and why deploying capital today and being active is great because from a valuation perspective definitely we've seen values shift. We've seen the widening out of cap rates occur. And so, you know, in a capital raising environment where people are maybe a little tentative because they're seeing this value change, you really have to show them where the opportunity is in that and why being capitalized at a time where, you know, you might pick up 50
2: to 100 basis points on value, why you should invest today. So what are the kind of standard goalposts that you use? Obviously, the markets change, but what's the bandwidth of, of returns you're usually operating in? And you mentioned timelines are doubling out. You know, what would have been a normal timeline to raise $50 million? In 2021, you were, every phone call, you were signing up
0: a subscription agreement. like It was pretty fluid. And so we were on average anywhere from two to three months on, on a raise. You know, Today, we're every bit of six to eight months for a raise, depending on the strategy. If it's a debt open end fund, that seems to be a little bit more active. I think people are liking the credit nature of that offering. And so, also being a usually a prime base type benchmark for those funds and keeping spreads the same, you're just your net return basis has gone double digit. And so now, as an investor, you're like, oh, That looks real good. Whereas if you were in a core kind of open end fund that was maybe income based outside of, let's say, multifamily and industrial, you're probably taking a harder look at the real values and where the opportunities are with the other base commercial assets. So we've seen, I would say, if it was a core strategy previously, you know, an investor's probably looking for a net return of about an eight. If it was core plus, it was likely around 10. Value add opportunistic strategies, if they were value add specifically, you're probably in the 12 to 14 range on a net basis. And then opportunistic capital has always kind of been 15 plus from a net basis. And so I'd say it's relatively the same. It's hard to get higher than that in those strategies, but on a net of fee basis, but I'd say we're probably
1: hundred basis points higher across the board on all those strategies. Is that just tangent? Like Adam and I are clueless on a lot of this stuff. Adam, I'm sure, knows way more than I do. I focus so much on the debt world. My head's spinning. I have no idea what you're talking about most of the time. But isn't part of the challenge? I mean, you just mentioned that the debt fund, the prime-based fund that's gone up and it looks really attractive. And The traditional capital stack, that's the low yield and everything kind of tranches up. But if the debt fund's gone up a couple hundred basis points, why hasn't everything else moved to the same scale? Or should it, I mean, I guess maybe we're still in, the, are we still in the phase of which- It does, right? So that higher
0: cost base, you look at anything opportunistic in a closed end fund environment, you shift that cost of funds up on the debt side of the capital stock. Interest expense being as high as it is, the reserves being as big as they need to be. That challenges projects, coupled with higher hard costs, right, across the board. We've seen on a lot of the debt side of the business, we've seen a lot of our construction costs The QS reports probably go to 18% year over year. And so in this environment to see that, it's challenging. And so throw in interest expense challenges and still trying to get back to net of fees, high
2: teens type return to your LPs, really tough. So who's is impacting most in the current market? Who's taking it on the chin on the equity side? I would say that the development community
0: is probably the most challenged just currently because of those variables where hard costs are shifting on that then challenges the landowner potentially they've got watermark 2021 values still in their head and we've seen land pricing shift a good 20% depending on what it's zoned for. But you know, if we're thinking about that multifamily condo side, I think that there's some headwinds there, but. What's interesting in Canada versus, say, some of the stuff that I work on in the States is we're mostly a recourse environment here. So a lot of the groups are extremely well capitalized. Their liquidity thresholds are a hell of a lot higher here, probably the highest I've seen globally. And so while it's challenging, I think things just aren't happening as quickly as they probably once were, and that's affecting returns as a result
1: i got another angle to question for you. So I'm a passive investor with $50 million. Lucky me. I've been coming to you saying, I want to get my money invested in real estate. It's 2019. And what are you recommending me to get invested in versus what you would recommend for me today? I think at 19, we were doing a lot of opportunistic
0: type raises for funds or single LP type projects specific. And so I'd say we were definitely seeing the trend in industrial. The uptick there, just funds open-ended, closed-ended, like it's just most of, well, both were fine. Like I think both were very liquid. So it was really a preference of the investor, how much they wanted to move up the risk curve. I think when you look at your more institutional pension fund-based groups, they're probably more core focused as a balance of their portfolio versus taking on value-add and opportunistic risk. But that private investor, that family office, they've got two times equity multiple on their head all day long. And so a lot of that capital we saw move up the risk curve in 19, take on that opportunistic risk for the returns that were being achieved. And there was an abundance of new construction in this city and throughout Canada and You know, returns were were holding. And I think they've only just recently been challenged. So in 19, we were definitely pushing, I think, more value-add opportunistic closed-end fund strategies and, and opportunities for investors to come
1: in. And then today, aside from timelines and checking my expectations on yield, what would be the investment strategy? Almost like
0: a return of core in a way, where I think if we look at outside of the debt metrics, which we see a lot of active capital wanting to those that have dry powder looking at that strategy. When you look at a little bit of the widening out in cap rates starting to occur, the value gap may be... Coming in a little bit clearer, as you had mentioned, as we hopefully are starting to get a lens to how our capital stocks are gonna be priced going forward in 23. Getting to a net return basis, I think it's gonna be a lot more fluid, potentially on the core side. I think there's just on development right now, just certain challenges around absorption, cost base and whatnot, that the investors that we speak to, I think are kind of returning to their security blanket a little bit and that heavily being based on core strategies. Do you invest your own money into any of these funds? I do. Full disclosure, I guess, by the Securities Commission. It's with under the 5% threshold. So... We do. And I think our capital markets group at Cushman, we're a true capital markets group, right? It's not just a realtor saying they do capital markets work. We are a capital-led capital markets group with the transaction side. But we've got unique opportunities where as a stamp of approval, we're invested in the LP on an individual basis, not Cushman itself. There's unique circumstances there,
2: but yeah, we practice what we preach. What's your risk profile then? Where do you tend to put your capital? Are you in the flight decor or uh, seeking those fringe returns for the home runs? No, I think I've made
0: bad decisions on the equity side of things, so I have to be focused on opportunistic type returns. But much like I think probably you two, I'm a 40-something-ish individual who's looking probably still in the growth mode of my investment decisions. I'm not really looking for the stable coupon just yet. Hopefully, have a number of years to continue to work to make it back if I make bad decisions. But I would invest in some of the opportunistic stuff. But even the core is interesting, right? When you look at just long-term cash flows, the growth that we've seen in rent and multifamily and industrial,
1: the fundamentals are there.
0: And it's interesting if you look longer term. It's a case of I look at God rest his soul, the Joe Siegels of the world out west who built an impressive portfolio. Where Joe never really sold much and he's one of the, and and the family now is one of the wealthiest in Canada. So just having that lens that Canada is a great place to invest, that this product type will always do well and that rental growth will be there with all the other macro factors. It's hard to overlook that. I don't think it's going to be different just because us three gentlemen start getting gray hair.
1: Yeah. If you invested in 2000 and then look back in 2020, you wouldn't have noticed the 2008-2009 issue, right? It would have just skated itself through it in the long run. Well, even in the US though, I think there panic as it's occurring, but then if you take a bigger picture, you take a step back, it's just going to long-term trend is the same. One I've had to, like probably both of you, a lot of
0: our team are young and that wasn't obviously taught in school. So just reminding them that the market doesn't always go up and here are the things that you need to know. What's a waterfall? Waterfalls are built in place for LPs to kind of disproportionately promote their GPs. And so a waterfall, as you can imagine, has a bucket of capital full of water with a bunch of different hurdles. And as the distribution of capital or the water hits the different hurdles, the GP is disproportionately promoted for the success of hitting those IRR thresholds.
1: So the better the project does, the better the outcome. Correct. The greater the return for the person taking the most risk in the investment in the first place.
0: Absolutely, and I think when you look at some of the GP and guarantee thresholds that they put up versus other LPs, let's say an NLP, They definitely take on a lot of that risk and they're being promoted for that and the success of execution.
2: Are people hitting their waterfall marks for deals that were structured within the last couple of years? Depends on what product type,
0: I think. If we look at those GPs that were industrial focused, they've done extremely well and probably continue to. It was the one asset class throughout Canada that actually had positive growth in sales transactions last year. Multifamily is probably a little bit tougher today, just on new product, where if you're building to a core strategy, just that cost base, I think, has probably been pretty challenging for you. The offset of that, however, would be the rental growth story is a real one. I was just on a panel with Julian from CapRate, and he was talking about 20-plus percent rental growth across their whole portfolio.
1: It's their leasing
0: spreads. Incredible, because they do have older stock. They do, yeah. And so you could see how we've seen in certain GTA markets where your eighteen hundred on a roll is moving to twenty six hundred bucks and you're like, This is twenty year old product.
1: I mean, I looked at one just recently, it was Kitchener Waterloo, it was nine hundred dollar rolling to two thousand. Are you an LP in that one? Yeah, no, I wish I was, <laughs> right? But but that's there are lots out there right there that are like that. Hundred percent, yeah. We've only got a couple of minutes left. When we sat down and first kind of explored this topic, you had talked about just a shift away from fund investment more towards direct. Why is that? When we look in Canada, GPs that we work with or investment managers,
0: you know, a lot of their funds have been heavily weighted in the institutional capital source. And whether it be allocation issues or the denominator effect kind of being a principal reason why those groups are challenged to invest today, I actually think it's just the case of the pension plans in Canada today are becoming a hell of a lot more real estate intelligent. Whether it's because, generally speaking, it's 15% of their portfolio, that's a significant amount, But what we've seen when we've pulled kind of the top 100 pension plans is they've started to build out their own direct invest platform. So whether that was through buying an investment manager or investing in one, or just again, having that astute knowledge locally within Canada, that from a domestic standpoint, they're kind of worried about their own book. And so the shift has been towards that private capital being more active in funds where whether it's Canada's biggest family offices or wealth management platforms or that accredited retail investor, that need for that capital, the more active
1: that we see in the market today. Does that not lead to more conflict? Because at least in a fund, it's kind of like, I've got your money. I'm setting my goalpost. I'm achieving the strategy that I had said, you sit there and take your yield But versus if you're involved direct. You feel like because you're less passive, you've got more of an opportunity to voice your concerns, and it just leads to more debate, perhaps. And maybe conflict's the bad word. I wouldn't say it's conflict, versus,
0: say, you've got a ton of existing relationships. And I think, you know, out of the 100 that we pulled or so, they're going to keep those relationships. They've had great returns with them, long partnerships. But I think it's more when we're looking at bringing new relationships to the fold, they're going to lean on their own internal platform more than investing with a new relationship. Definitely when they enter new markets, so we do a big, big part of our job is taking Canadian capital and hitting the foreign markets, whether that's With our neighbors to the south in the United States or over to Europe, we're making those kind of stellar tier one introductions to GPs in those markets. That's where, again, the cycle of their strategy is, let's lean on the best in class investment manager in those markets. And probably until they get educated in those markets, they won't start to either buy or build their own platforms foreignly. So. The Canadian capital landscape has definitely shifted, right? It's unique, but what we can overlook here in Canada is we just have a ton of private capital sources that are opportunistic, invest for the long term as well. And so while they may be sitting down and thinking and reading the OM two or three times over versus just once before, I think when the capital markets settle down, the value question mark is now answered and stability seems to be in place. It's easier to calculate what my net return is going to be, and we'll see that activation of private capital again
2: into funds and other projects. Because that is the anticipated return is kind of springtime, which is not that far away from where we're sitting right now. Do you believe we're a month or two away from searing a big uptake and it's making your job a little easier, more institutional transactions taking place? Is that the vision that uh, you've got? I don't. No. Okay. All right. Counter. Well, I like that because at the real
1: estate forum in December, it was Q3 2023, baby. Like that's what everyone was saying. We're coming back. Yeah,
0: I don't see it. I mean, I think, don't get me wrong. There'll be a lot of good strategic opportunities. I think you've still got... Whether it's NAVs or pricing expectation of those with product, those vendors, you know, they're not going to release things at a discount just because the cost of capital is a little bit higher. So I don't see transaction volumes picking up. You take a look at the first couple of months of this year in Canada, I think we're a 40 to $50 billion market per year on investment activity. So call it 4 billion ish a month. We were 1.2 billion for January right so it was significantly off and i think while we work at a brokerage we're not delusional like brokerages where we take that data and we say okay so they're still on the sideline that activity people aren't willing to monetize their assets at today's values so probably takes i think a couple more quarters gentlemen to hang on to that really see if the capital market's improving if you were a seller right and you're seeing inflation drop off You're assuming the bond markets will react. You're assuming the overnight rate will come down. And as that cost of capital gets cheaper, that's going to free up that growth in the free cash flow of any investment you make. And so if that capital becomes more liquid, then I think product gets a bit more scarce, pricing goes up, and groups will wait until I think they see that. And I'd love to be opportunistic and say, Hey, I think it's going to happen this year, but likely I think we'll have to wait until we're kind of sub 4% on inflation. And we see the overnight rate take a cut first, and then people will be like, Oh, we're recovering cost of capitals. It's going to be cheaper activity is going to pick up. I want to pick up whilst we still think there's a discount out there. And I think that's likely Q1 of 24.
2: And that window will be small, There's like a, in terms of timing? Correct, yeah. If a market is difficult to get in and out of, the window is going to be uh, pretty tight, I think. And I think listening to Benjamin
0: this morning here at the conference, it's smarter people than I who are predicting that. So really, I think if the cost of funds come down, you'll see that splurge of activity go. Is it going to be the same as 2021? No, because I don't think we'll see bond markets like that again. Will it return to a 40 to $50 billion a year type clip on trades? For sure. And that's likely in 24, but... I don't think our team's delusional that 23 is going to be fruitful halfway through the year. I think we're in for a fight.
1: So then, are, do the yields return? Right. I'm just trying to do the math. Like, you're never going to get maybe. A, and depends, I guess, what you're comparing to. Use 2019 as the base number. That's probably the easiest way to do it, right? So, do the yields return? Like, whether it's the core, the core plus, or the the opportunistic, are you getting back to the same thresholds that you were in 2019? Assuming again, you know, what you're suggesting sounds reasonable. That we're never getting back to the 0.5 five year canadas, right? out of the overnight rate being effectively zero i think values will return so where the yield may be it could be
0: set a little bit higher than where it was in 21 but when you look at the actual rental growth happening i think you'll see that that will also allow values to hold because for example using julian at cap as the example his portfolio growing at 20 plus percent in rental growth on turns that right there is going to lead to higher IRRs and, you know, we'll push your NAV up. So I think it'll be asset specific. And, you know, for the most part, I think commercial real estate will get over this little bump in the road with the headwinds. And again, values I think will hold and it'll all be based on that rental growth story across most of the asset classes.
1: Can I summarize? Because I'm just trying to put it in a way that my brain can understand it. The 20 years previous, save and accept for a couple of years in the middle there, rising rates. Rising rents, decreasing rates, therefore decreasing cap rates. Let's assume you're thinking rates are flat for the most part going forward, but that means cap rates are flat. So really the yield, the return to yield is dependent on a, a rising rents. Again, a golden rule that I kind of say for my team, maybe outside of
0: multifamily is for every 100 basis points a cost to shift, or sorry, shift in the cost of funds, cap rates will move 25 to 30 basis points. So if we've seen cost of funds kind of go up, 100 200 basis points you know cap rates should shift mathematically speaking 30 to 60 same on the inverse if we see the cost the funds come off 100 basis points you know we should see cap rates compress 30 basis points and that's all just to get back to the same net return number and the game is timing the lag that those two follow each other exactly right so where is it and i think again Per Benjamin and much smarter people than I, you lean on the data that they're providing, which is great. We're seeing inflation come off, but I think it's really when we're sub four and we're getting close to that target rate of two and we'll see the cuts happen to the overnight rate. I think the bond markets will react and in
2: 24 we'll have much cheaper debt and as such transactions will pick up. Well, the bonds will start coming off just as soon as the Bank of Canada starts talking about cutting the overnight rate. You know, We'll see the bonds come off. So at least on that side of the debt options, we'll see relief there much sooner because all you need is just the, the whispers. To the point about cap rates and interest rates, Aaron and I were talking about real estate, not in front of mics, just for pure recreation and earlier. Part of the thing that kind of saved us in this last interest rate run-up is 2021-2020, the gap between interest rates and cap rates was the widest it had been in 10 years. So We go up 150 beeps, well, maybe the first 75, 80, 90 beeps didn't even matter because I was just picking up the slack in the system that was already there. And now we're feeling it, but we've not had a catastrophic shift in valuations because we're coming off of such a wide gap. We had a lot of cushion in our uh, adjusted returns.
0: Yeah. And I think as the investor, that's tough, right? Like how do you get to that gap again, where you have that balance between your debt costs and your return base?
2: We are out of time today. I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us. I know you've had a busy day. You had a panel earlier, you had a podcast. This is a lot of chatting about real estate. So enjoy the the break from it once this is done. We want to thank, of course, Real Estate Forums for inviting us here today, First National for powering the podcast. But most of all, Scott, thank you. Thanks for coming on. No, thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for having me.